yeah, because they go from the apartment to the office, back to the apartment to the office, I want it to feel like, like there is no escape. Um, and it's like, how do we create two different claustrophobic, um, you know, environments? And for me, it was in the apartment. I wanted to confine them between these long hallways and that were very narrow. And for the office, uh, we wanted to create like this fishbowl, you know, feeling where, you know, there are no walls there. You're always in each other's sight and seeing each other through reflections and, and, um, and because there is no escape in this film, like it, that's why the, it explodes and it goes to those explosive places. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode... The power dynamics of a young relationship are examined in director Chloe Dumont's erotic thriller, Fair Play. The film tells the story of Emily and Luke, a young couple working at a cutthroat hedge fund who find themselves tested when an unexpected promotion threatens to unravel far more than their recent engagement. Fair Play is Dumont's feature directorial debut. Her other directorial credits include episodes of Billions, Ballers, Suits, Shooter, Clarice, and Star Trek Discovery. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Dumont spoke with director Olivia Wilde about filming Fair Play. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi, thank you so much for coming. This is really exciting for me, Chloe because I'm a real fan. And um, I was just saying, I had watched this at home on a pretty good system, but the ability to come see it in this theater and at least to catch the end 20 minutes to really experience the sound, which is so beautifully mixed and created, um, as well as the cinematography was really a joy. So I hope many people get to see it big as well. Me too. Um, Yes. So I thought we'd just start off. I mean, this is a a thriller about relationship dynamics. It's also um, about so much more about our culture, about greed, the patriarchy, so many things. But because this is your first feature and you are so experienced in television and you've been a storyteller for a long time, I was just curious why this, why was this your first one? Um, well, I, I, I was, um, when I was out of college and you know, you're, you're, you're hungry and you're thirsty for, you know, uh, you're like, I'm, you're just thirsty for, to make any feature, you know, in a way. And, and, and it took me a while to kind of find, um, the thing that I really needed to tell. And, uh, I wrote some other things and I just felt like they weren't good enough or they didn't pierce me enough or it wasn't timely enough or something. I, I just felt like I could do better. <laughs> and so I tortured myself for many years and trying to find something that, that, that I just felt deep, deep inside was like the story, you know, that was mine and the story that I needed to tell her the story I couldn't not tell. And, um, and I think that, um, it took some life experience to, to realize that this was the story, um, that I needed to tell and the story that was really burning inside of me. Um, but, um, it really came from, um, you know, feeling I was having, um, in my personal life at the time, um, when my career started to take off. Um, and, um, 
my uh, success didn't feel like a total win. It felt like a loss on some level. Um, and it was that feeling that, that I started to, you know, uh, sink into, into the story. And, um, you know, these, it was this feeling really because I was in relationships with certain kinds of men who, who were threatened by me on some level. And, and, uh, but these were also men who adored me for my ambitions, you know, adored me for my strengths, adored me for, um, what I was trying to do. But at the same time, there was still this feeling that me being big made some of them feel small. And it just made me realize how much hold these ingrained power dynamics still have over us. Um, so that's something that I really wanted to put on screen and, and just go crazy with it. And you did. Absolutely. I mean, the idea of success at what cost immediately her rise to success feels, uh, like she's now less safe. His promotion suddenly made him feel more secure. He was more attracted to her. He felt more confident. The celebrations that she was so um, enthusiastic about, of course, and supportive. And then the inverse was so striking. She's immediately unsafe and trying to figure out ways to, to fix that. And, um, I too found it really, um, personally kind of familiar and, and fascinating and to tell it in this high stakes world was so interesting. Is there something about the world of finance and, uh, that, that interests you specifically because you, you created it so beautifully? Yeah. I mean, I think I was looking for new territory to explore and, and a new backdrop, but I felt like, mm, I wanted, I guess my experience, you know, in this is, uh, was in film and TV, but I didn't want to center a story, you know, in that world. Cause that would be boring and you know, whatever. But, um, so, but I felt like there were actually a lot of parallels, uh, uh, to, what a lot of us go through in this industry to the finance industry. And, uh, just for one, like the, the highs, like how, you know, the high highs that you experience on one day and the low lows that you experience on the next day and, and just the high stakes nature, you know, it just always feels like it's life or death stakes and whatever you're doing, you know? Um, uh, so it felt like even though I knew nothing about finance, it felt like I could emotionally tap into what it's like to be in that environment and what, and what those emotional fluctuations do to a person and do to a relationship and how, you know, the toxicity of a work environment can feed into the toxicity of a relationship and vice versa becomes this, you know, toxic bubble that you can't really escape. Absolutely. And, and the way that she can handle the intensity of her very high stakes job, being one of the only women there, but she can handle it even when she's, you know, called a bitch by her boss. You see this moment of her just like handling it because it's something that she's somewhat prepared for. It's a part of a system that she understands. And yet what she almost couldn't predict was the dismantling of her relationship and this person that she trusted so deeply, completely revealing himself to be someone different. Um, and I loved how the two worlds you created were so juxtapositional and interesting. The, the office is bright. There's so much light. There's so much glass. It feels, um, exposed. And then their home is in the shadows and often in the darkness. Can you talk a little bit about your phenomenal production design? Um, yeah, so I wanted to create two different looks of claustrophobia 
And, um, because we're in these places so much, you know, I, I, um, it was important to me that we really built, built this on stage. Um, and because we're in it so much, I, I, I just felt like it needed to look right. And also you want this, you want the space to be able to shoot it, you know, differently. And, uh, each time because we're always there, but, um, but, uh, yeah, because they go from the apartment to the office, back to the apartment, to the office, I want it to feel like, like there is no escape. Um, and it's like, how do we create two different claustrophobic, um, you know, environments? And for me, it was in the apartment. I wanted to confine them between these long hallways and that were very narrow. And, and what we actually, um, started to do is halfway through the second, you know, second act, um, as the cracks are, you know, getting bigger and bigger, we started to bring the walls in 10% each time. Um, <laughs> we were, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. And it's not something that I ever wanted the audience to like, you know, notice or like, you know, we weren't going surreal with it, but you just start to feel like the world is, is closing in on them. Because I imagine that's for the actors, it, that must've been really interesting too. It, yeah. I mean, it, it was just, it was cool, you know, and it was, it was, um, um, yeah. And then for the office, uh, we wanted to create like this fishbowl, you know, feeling where, you know, there are no walls there. You're always in each other's sight and seeing each other through reflections and, and, um, and because there is no escape in this film, like it, that's why the, it explodes and it goes to those explosive places. Well, I mean, your cinematography is, it's, it's also so, um, it's so uh, effective as a storytelling device. I loved how, you know, I felt for the first half of the film, we're really following Emily so much. We're behind her. And I love those kind of floating moments of kind of discovering this kind of strange cave of <laughs> twisted mystery with her. And then you, we end up in front of her. We've really kind of come to understand her and we're really face to face with her. Um, talk a little bit about your cinematographer because this was your first film together. Um, yeah, we... I had seen a film that he had done a few years ago and, um, and, uh, he'd only done two features. Um, and, um, but I watched this film and, um, and just tonally it felt like in line with what I was trying to do. Um, sort of the movement, the lighting. And so I just felt like he understood where I, I just felt like we were, you know, we spoke the same language. And when we, when we met, um, it was just like instant and, um, and we have the same, um, work habits and, um, we uh, were, going through this film every day, months leading up to it before just working out the shot list, um, doing diagrams, just like trying things, you know, talking about stuff and, and, uh, and pushing our, pushing each other, you know, and, and, um, and, uh, no, it was really, um, it's, it's one of the best collaborations I've ever had. Um, and, um, and we were just very much in line with, with creating this pressure cooker, ticking time bomb, um, uh, thriller and, 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 and just like, you know, constantly asking ourselves, like, is this, you know, uh, is this the best place for the camera to be for the scene to, to keep that ballooning tension just going and going and going. I mean, right off the bat when she sees the ring and we don't, that moment, it's like, whoa, this movie's going to disturb me and I have no idea what's going to happen. I thought it was a gun. I don't know what that says about me. Um, but I think that, you know, the, 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 f the way we are voyeuristically kind of like, uh, spying on them and feeling like we understand something terrible is going to happen to them and then enjoying watching it unravel. Were there thrillers that you two were using as reference points? Um, a lot of Fincher, 
because uh, he's the master, you know, <laughs> one of the masters. Um, and then also this film, Loveless, um, which uh, is by the Russian director whose name I cannot pronounce for the life of me, and so I can't even try. But uh, he did Leviathan, he did Loveless, and and uh, that was a film. I just think he's, um, the way that he builds tension through 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 the lens is is um, is unlike anyone else I've seen. And but I mean that to his his stuff is like is like a slow burn of this this excruciating tension of a of a bubble that never pops. And I think that's like the genius of his work. You know um, what I was trying to do was create this this uh, this ballooning tension, almost like a, a, a you know a car crash in slow motion. But but once the balloon does pop, it turns into a dogfight, and then you know. Know, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah. And what about sound design in that same way, building that tension that the score was really incredible. I also loved how you used the sounds of the city. Um, but talk a little bit about building that amazing soundscape. Um, yeah. So I told my sound designers, I said, I want to design, uh, design this like a, like a horror film basically. And I want to use the tropes there. Um, and, uh, and we did a lot like the first time that, um, when she tells him that she's been promoted and he's, and he rises from the couch and he starts to come towards her. I'm like, I want it dead quiet, except I just want to hear floor creaks. And, you know, and so it was just because she's terrified. She doesn't know how she's going to react. So everything was really like every choice we made was all about like trying to reflect the emotional states of the character and shine a light on this kind of emotional terror. Um, but and then in terms of like the city uh, escapes, um, I said I wanted the city to start to feel like an antagonist as much as the characters become to each other. Um, and having lived in New York for eight years, it's like, New York is the worst place to be when you're experiencing any kind of distress because it's like the city like smells your fear and just feeds and attacks you. And it's just like violating and assaulting on every single level. So I just wanted the sounds like the subway to just be, you know, sound that abrasive and 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 um, and just like an onslaught. Um, and then in terms of like the score, um with uh with Brian like we we would abuse instruments like um yeah I remember at some point he was like beating the shit out of a cello just like going for it I was like I want the music to hurt you know in a way but um but I think the biggest uh the biggest choice that we made with that was that um it's like how do you keep that anxiety induced feeling going without without um you know deflating it or feeling like it's repetitive in a way and and for us, it was like we we created a score of complete like dissonance to just which gives you that uneasy feeling that just keeps you on the edge. And we actually never used any notes that resolved until the last scene when he gets on his knees. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. It's incredible that even with using those really unnerving tones in the score, I still felt the romance of the relationship at the beginning, which is, of course, everything. Um, the chemistry between them is is really incredible. Talk a little bit about building that with them and the rehearsal process. Um, so we had about, about a week of rehearsals, and um, that was... Uh, before we shot and that was invaluable um we it allowed us to bond uh allowed them to bond um and uh, we we rehearsed with an intimacy coordinator as well um during rehearsals um but um but that's i mean that time was um was i think crucial for for the chemistry that that they built um but also we did um 
uh, it was Alden's suggestion, which I had never done before, which I think was amazing. We did backstory improvisation of like the first time they said, I love you. You know, the first time they met in the office, um, you know, the first time he asked her on a date. And I think building that history, I think really helped, um, them and helped me too. I mean, I feel that first scene in the bathroom at the wedding tells so much that's so intimate and it does so much to um, describe who they are and and who he really is as a man. It's interesting because you set him up in that scene to be someone who's quite, um, I would say, confident in his masculinity. It's not uh, a moment, you know, we might assume that a man in that situation would react differently. He's incredibly kind of supportive and it, it, it struck me because of course then what he reveals is that what he has inside of him is something maybe he wasn't even aware of, which is this like deep misogyny. <laughs> and it's like, it, it's something that maybe he was raised with. No. And I think like, that's what I wanted to really show that Luke represents a certain generation of men caught in the middle between wanting to adhere, like genuinely, genuinely, you know, like on a heartfelt level, wanting to adhere to a modern feminist society, but still having been raised on traditional ideas of masculinity and it's that intersection, like that's where the conflict is. And you see him struggling with that, like internalizing it. And, and, um, you know, you see him like wanting to, you know, he wants to support her. He wants to do the right thing, but he's wired a certain way. And, and, um, and, uh, yeah, he can't get past that. I mean, I would say there's nothing more terrifying than a disenfranchised white man. <laughs> Um, but there's the moment where he's kind of watching the sort of Jordan Peterson-esque um, uh, lecture series and wanting to be, you know, reminded of his power. Um, and I found it so interesting that he tries to kind of help her, quote unquote, by telling her how she can, you know, he's still trying to be somehow in charge of her, even though he's clearly her subordinate. Um, and that's of course, like goes to the roots of the patriarchy and like the church and everything else. But I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's so true that this is a generation caught in the middle and we see him really struggling with it. We want him to pull out of it. Um, and he's just not quite able to. And yet in the end, I'm curious, do you feel in the end that she got what she needed? Is it, is it a win for her in the end? For me, like the final scene is about her, reclaiming the power that he takes away from her, you know, in the bathroom scene. And, um, you know, this is a man who kind of has abused her on every single level at this point starts with the emotional abuse and verbal abuse and then eventually like physical assault. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, like that last scene, it's, it's not about female revenge. It's about holding him out accountable, um, and getting him to finally face and own his own inferiority. And like, because he's, you know, this is a man who has caused so much, so much harm because he cannot face that because he cannot own up to that. And, uh, and ultimately from, for me, like the whole, the whole film really builds up to the line where he, where he finally says I'm nothing. And you see him finally accept that for the first time. And that's the first time he really just like breaks down. Um, and for me, like that's where, that's where the film needed to end because like ultimately more than being a film about female empowerment, this is really a film about male fragility. Oh, fantastic. 
I mean, you mentioned the rape scene, which I thought was incredible in its unflinching um, simplicity and clarity. And I certainly haven't seen that before. I think that many people will be discussing the complexity of, you know, rape within relationships and that murky line that um, is something that, you know, uh, I, I feel that is is a huge kind of point of this film. It really struck me. Um, talk a little bit about your decision to include that and how to film that. That's the kind of scene that I think might make some directors feel anxious and nervous about yeah. putting it in there. Um, yeah. So for me, like the film always had to escalate to, you know, um, sexual assault and, uh, cause ultimately it's like, <sighs> rape isn't about sex. Rape is about power. Right. And this is, I set out to make a thriller about power dynamics on the ugliest level. So for me, it always had to go there because that's the only way for Luke to reclaim the power in that moment is through physical dominance. Um, so yeah, I was very clear about where it needed to go and, and how it needed to go. And then in terms of how we, how we filmed it, how, you know, um, we rehearsed with an intimacy coordinator, we rehearsed with stunt coordinator, um, and we shot that scene in two, in two sections. So, uh, we shot everything like performance wise, and then we treated the more physical part like a stunt. Wow. And then that just helped everyone that helped the actors that helped camera that helped everyone just feel safer. And just knowing that, you know, and also the actors could be free to just act, you know, without wondering where their head is going to land or what they need to do technically. And, and, um, and that I think just, just really freed us, um, on the day, um, and, uh, and allowed us to, to get it done. Amazing. I mean, they are such extraordinary actors. Can you talk a little bit about casting? Yeah. Um, so in terms of like, uh, Emily, uh, she's, uh, that character, you know, she's a, a rising star in the world of finance. So, I was looking for a kind of rising star and, and Phoebe had a lot of buzz coming off of Bridgerton, but hadn't really made a splash in, in, um, in, uh, the, you know, the film space. Um, so I, I watched Bridgerton and, um, I just, I just couldn't take my eyes off her. I think that she, she's incredibly magnetic. I think that she's, she's an incredibly strong actor who's super present, super dialed in, there was uh, a warmth and a vulnerability, but also a fierceness. And, you know, it just drives me personally nuts <laughs> in how like ambitious career women are depicted oftentimes in, in, in film and TV is like, they're just either cutthroat, you know, they're super cutthroat and they have no warmth and whatever, because that's how people think like ambitious women are. And I just wanted to show with this character and you know, that women are everything. They can be loving and warm, but also they can be a killer. You know, and, and, and Phoebe, I just, I just knew that she would be able to, you know, she was all of that as well. Um, and then just talking to her, um, yeah, she, how much she personally related to the film and, and, and how she was just so excited to commit to this role, um, was, uh, it was just a no brainer. Um, and then with Alden, I had been a big fan of his since Hail Caesar. Um, I think he's an incredibly strong, versatile actor and, and I was super excited when he responded to the script. Um, so when we met, 
um, you know, I, I knew, <laughs> I knew that I needed a very confident man to play that level of insecurity. <laughs> and, uh, Alden was incredibly confident. He's incredibly comfortable with, you know, who he is and his own skin. Um, so I, you know, I, I felt very comfortable, you know, uh, with <laughs> knowing that I had that, but, but, but more than that too, like he's, Luke is such he has such a complicated arc, you know, he needs to be charming and lovable and you need to like him and, you know, but also then he needs to go to those insecure and dark places and, and, um, and Alden, he's, he, he's just such an incredibly strong actor who himself is incredibly charming and lovable, but was willing to just, you know, dive into that, um, you know, material, um, head first. They both felt so of that world. Like I completely bought it that that's where they were, where they were, they had been raised. I love when she says like, that's not why I got, we got into this. Like she had fully owns that like they both got into this for the same reason. They're both so ambitious, but why, why is it not okay for me to be more successful? When she asked that question, I felt all of us asking that question was so satisfying. Um, no, I, I agree that he has something really rare in that confidence that's able to support a film that, I mean, it is a two-hander, but it really, for me, feels like a, a, a her film. Um, and she handles that so beautifully. And the supporting cast is also extraordinary. I'm just curious, how much like your script were their characters by the end? Like, how, how, how big of a departure did the actors um, create from the script itself? Um, I would say it's, it's pretty close. The one thing though, that I would say we, we discovered and then, you know, uh, leaned into was, um, uh, like empathy, you know, with Luke's character, like, and I think it's a lot of what Alden brought to the role. Like he, he, <laughs> he made me empathize with him in moments when I didn't even have, you know, writing, writing the script initially. And I just thought like, that is the more interesting version of the film. You know, I, I didn't, I never set out to make something black and white and I never set out to make anything where there was a clear villain, you know what I mean? Or, and I've always said, Emily's not a hero. She's a human, you know? So it was, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it was more. And when, when, you know, in, in moments when he, you could see him like in certain scenes, on, you know, just, it was a lot of leaning into the pain. And I felt the more I lean into his pain, the more interesting it's going to be. Yeah. And with only a week of rehearsals, yeah. it's really amazing. Um, just from a logistical standpoint, you shot this in Serbia in how many days? Uh, we built all the sets. Yeah. Um, in on stages in, in Belgrade, Serbia, we shot 27 days there. And then we shot two days in New York, all the exteriors. Wow. And you were mentioning that this happened faster than you had anticipated. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you handled that? Um, yeah, I feel very lucky that um, I found such amazing producers right away um, who just got this thing cast and financed. And, uh, and uh, a few months later, we were just going. Wow. And uh, I wasn't 
I, I was bracing myself for the opposite because I've had, you know, all my friends who have gone through it and made their first features and, you know, things get up and running and then they fall apart and you go through three or four or five, six financiers before your film actually gets made and you go through, you know, 10 different, you know, iterations of what the cast is and all that stuff. But, uh, no, I just feel really grateful that, you know, my, um, my agents were first the real champions of this film and they knew who to send it to. They knew who would get it and, and they sent it to MRC and T street and, and uh, those guys read it within a day and I met them the next day and they signed on that night. Wow. That's great. And then your post-process, I mean, we know it ended in at Sundance with a major moment at Sundance. Um, at how long was your post-process and did you, were you rushing for the deadlines or how did that go? No. Um, I think, um, you know, it's, uh, they really, um, I mean, Ron Bergman, he really believes in post and, uh, giving as much time in post. And so, uh, uh, so him and Ben and Leo, everyone at T street, like they, they did everything they could to give me as much time in post. So I, I really feel lucky that we had, we had a comfortable amount of time to edit. We weren't, and we, and the, when we finished the film, we finished in uh, spring. So we had a lot of time before, you know, before what we were trying to hope for, which was sun, which was Sundance. Um, so I had, I had a, I had a generous amount of time in the edit and, and sound design, which, uh, I feel so grateful for, um, because, uh, yeah, I was uh, obsessive about every single little detail and I really, you know, I, I, uh, I needed that time to get it right too. I mean, it really paid off. I absolutely love the sound design. I'm curious. Okay. So now you make a deal with a streamer. Talk a little bit about that decision and then as a filmmaker, how you feel about the way then that it is experienced. Um, I mean, Netflix just, uh, they really got the film and, and they really, uh, were like such, you know, they were going to get behind this movie and, and put it out there and, um, and the global reach, you know, that, that, that Netflix has and, um, uh, you know, was, was a big part of it. But, um, I want as many people to see this movie as possible. <laughs> so that was, I think that was important for me. It was important for all of us. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, it's going to have a limited theatrical release. So, it didn't feel like that was a compromise. Uh, this film is going to open next Friday. It'll be in theaters and it'll stay in theaters as long as people are going. So, yeah. That's great. I agree. I want as many people to see it as possible <laughs> as well. Um, I, I, I don't have any more questions. I'm just such a fan. I'm so blown away by this. Um, and I really can't wait to see what you do next because I think that it's just absolutely extraordinary. And it was, it's a real honor to sit and talk with you about it. Thank you so much. It was an honor to have you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 